So I started teaching this week, um, which is a bittersweet thing. It means that winter break's over, and it means that I'm, I'm, I have to really work hard again. What are you teaching, briefly? I'm teaching um, intro-level classes, Introduction to Writing About Literature, mm-hmm. which, if it goes well, is incredibly fun. And if it goes poorly, is not as incredibly fun. Um, and I was, so I give, do this whole spiel and I wrote this whole long document about like what plagiarism is and why we have this kind of like prohibition against it and everything. And as I'm writing a, about it, you know, I'm having these, or, or, or sort of editing it and looking back over it, I'm having these flashbacks of the most egregious, flagrant plagiarism cases in my history as a teacher. And I'm getting mad all over again. I'm just getting angry. And I'm like, why am I getting angry? I don't get angry when students misspell words mm-hmm. or like have kind of like poorly reasoned arguments or even when they don't do the reading, I don't get mad. I don't really get mad. But when I am looking at this stuff at the plagiarism, I get upset. I get really mad. Because well, you're supposed to be setting, you're supposed to be like, like no one will do this, right? Like this is what it is, but like you're not going to do this. And instead you're thinking about the the eventuality that they definitely will do that. No, well, not, no. I or, actually, I don't think that's true. I think that, I, I actually think that, in, except in the very few cases of, like, true psychopathy, mm-hmm. like, all plagiarism is avoidable. If you, if, as long as, and it's about communication. Like, people, as long as the lines of communication are open and people feel comfortable about communicating with me, then then it can all be avoided. Because it's not like a moral failing like 99% of the time. Yeah. It's just panic or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I still, it, it's not, again, like it's not the crime, it's the cover up, right? It's when people go like, when, when I've got proof mm-hmm. and they're like, nope, no, I didn't do it. I'm like, right. that is impossible. I won't say impossible. I'll say statistically improbable that you managed to reproduce like the exact wording of this, Right, you know, of this website in your paper in four different places, but also changing four or five words to make it appear as though that's not what you're doing. Yeah, your, right? monkey, your monkeys on typewriters are likely not to, to reproduce this. Yeah, and they can't recognize that the best course of action for them is to just cop to it, and then we can move forward. Mm-hmm. And instead, I get, I get, you know, it's not like I, I don't yell at students. I maybe have yelled at one student ever over this because it was so. It was so flagrant, and I was... But all of this is running through your head. Yeah. And it's mostly the anger. It's mostly the anger. Okay. Right? Yeah. And it just occurred to me today that I have a podcast that is all about <laughs> faking and lying, and all of the times I have done this, I don't... It, it might be because it's the thing you hate the most. This is all about my self-loathing. Mm-hmm. It's so upsetting. Like, the one thing where I could finally be like, look, I'm going to be so understanding and blah, 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 but here's the one thing you don't do as my student. Well, it's a version of what we talk about all the time. It's just the th- it's not the thing that necessarily, like, you or I have indulged in in this way. Yeah. But it's, like, the same thing. Yeah. I know. It's like, I didn't I didn't read it. I didn't do it. I, I didn't write it. Yeah. But I might as well have. I might as well have. Right. It's that yeah. feeling. Yeah. Right. So, I, I maybe this is part of my like beginning of a slide into true moral relativism where there is no right there is no wrong there are no misspellings there are no grammar errors there is no like improper argumentation etc cetera, etc cetera, because like everything all of my standards they're all just you know reflections of my own insecurities self-loathing etc you know maybe this is the end of me as a truly effective teacher as a truly kind of moored person who has values and ideals that I'm trying to uphold. So at the end, you just told them it's okay to plagiarize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm over it. I, I have to get over it. This yeah. is just... This is about me. Let's move on. Yeah. And then I broke down in tears in front of them. Wow, it's a weird first week, man. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, well, maybe we'll get an update. I don't know. Maybe. Like, um, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't have a segue from that. But today's guest... Um, Taught me to embrace what I don't know about uh, food and cooking. Um, nothing to do with plagiarism. Um, I really love cooking and it's something um, that can totally kill you because you may feel like you don't know how to do it. Um, I think particularly like 
making food on your own, but also like being in restaurants, like the world of food in the world and, and feeling like you're not an expert can push you to places that feel very uncomfortable. And um, I don't have an anecdote about lying about knowing the wine list or something, mm-hmm. but um, I think that like my face shows that I do pretend to know what the wine list is Do you still do that? I, I gave myself over years ago and was well, like, just, and, and was just like, I don't know. Just tell me. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't go that far cause I kind of can't bring myself to do it, but I'll sort of give some vague directions and be like, I like this and that. And I feel like I'm every time I'm getting a little bit better about being okay with the not knowing mm-hmm. and dealing with the sommelier. And we'll get to that. Uh, talking about sommeliers in particular uh, later. Um, anyway, uh, we're very happy to have our guest here, um, and this is Faking It, a show where we check our cultural blind spots, make up for past wrongs, and come to terms with the shameful lies we've told. Um, so you knew that I was gonna, I was waiting for that intro. I felt like you were gonna, was. I was, felt like you were gonna skip it, and it made me really upset. No. Um, Tamar Adler is our guest today. Hi, guys. Hey, Tamar. Uh, she's the author of two books on food. Uh, an Everlasting Meal and Something Old, Something New, and is the host of Food Actually, the best podcast about food that there ever was. And maybe the best podcast there ever was. Yeah, well... I'm just going to say that. We're, we're, we're tied for Show's first. Faking. Tied for first. That's oh, yeah. It's like there's way faking to, it. It's a great way to think about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's faking it, and then there's Food Actually. I haven't looked yeah. at the charts, but I'm pretty sure that it's... The numbers bear it out. tied for one. Yeah. So, great. And... um. Uh, she's was the food columnist for the New York Times Magazine for several years and continues to be a regular contributor at Vogue. Uh, she's also supremely talented at making magic out of beans. Uh, uh, a food in that, a I think Jack the Beanstalk. When you say that, yeah, it's not that far away. Wow. you should think of Jack and the Beanstalk. People rarely do when you say beans. Do you want to? Is that something that you're trying to bring back? The kind of no. No, I just like bean the the fact that beans grow on stalks mm. seems very uh, distant from the way. We That's buy true. Beans. You know, I do not ever think about that, yeah. but it's where true. beans come from. No, yeah, I think the of them being that says Goya on the front, <laughs> um, and sometimes Goya organic. Speaking <laughs> of beans, yes, there is there is like a terrible gray storm cloud over this conversation which nobody has pointed out yet, but I'm going to, which is that I was asked to bring Mr. Naga, oh, and I forgot it. Not a bean product, but a spicy well, Wait, what, well, what, what, is, well what is Mr. Naga for those, like perhaps me, who don't know what that is? Yeah, for most people uh-huh. who don't yet have the hashtag Naga life, <gasps> but should have the hashtag Naga love, here's what it is. I can do more than two. I don't no, it's, it's fine. I, I don't even I mean, sure. It's so Mr. Naga is this spicy Bangladeshi pickle that I've only ever encountered in the Bangladeshi store um that's my closest bodega in Hudson, New York. And it is the single most amazing, most delicious hot sauce I've ever ever experienced and i like i love i love spicy stuff i love hot sauce so i go after them i i look for them and this one is like uh, yeah it's it's transformative can you describe the what makes it so or just or compare it to other hot sauces that if we i had know? brought it this wouldn't i mean this no, is, I know. Well, well, our listeners would still not be able to taste it but we'd be describing it with our, Via our vocabularies. amazing vocabularies they would have under they would but, re- tell, but tell yeah. us with your we're relying on it you was so spicy that you can't get enough of it. Like, you can't eat enough of it to taste all of the flavors mm-hmm. because mm. it's too spicy, but you want to. Mm-hmm. So it sets you into this weird this into this into weird relationship mm-hmm. with it because, like, you want to taste more of it because it's so delicious, but you can't taste more of it because it's so hot. That's amazing. It's a, it's perfect. Is Especially it- if we could just, like, reproduce this because it's, this is not – it's not a drug. Right, oh. and it's not something that you could. It costs like three ninety nine. Right, and it cre- it. I think it simulates the perfect human experience. Yeah, or it provides the perfect human experience, and that it's like, it's exciting and always a bit. It's it's beyond the horizon. Now this is it's something. That, this is something that's always kind of like puzzled me about spice because you say like, well, it's not like a drug, right? But to me, like spice, 
is the closest non-drug experience to drugs, right? Because the thing you get from it, as you said, is not flavor, but like this feeling, and it makes you crave it more and more. Also, you you have a feeling that it's bad for you, even though it's not actually bad for you. No. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I think that's an important, I think you just kind of put your finger on a false binary. Mm. No, I yeah, I've done it, thank you. Well, that also makes me think of this passage from Tao Lin's novel, um, Oh gosh, Taipei, Um, Mm -hmm. where he has this passage where he's like, what is a drug and what isn't? We don't even know what that means, right? A drug is something that affects your mindset. It affects like how you think. It it affects your perception. And all kinds of things do that. Like who's to say what's a drug and what's not, right? And certainly people who eat things like ghost peppers for fun, right, are people who are chasing something that is not flavor, but some kind of experience that's much closer to a drug experience than well, it is. But you're, but you're perpetuating the binary. Like, I think that there's... When I said it's not a drug, I was uh, wrong. Like, I think the whole idea that there is, like, some intoxicant mm-hmm. that is... That there's some, like, uh, threshold beyond which something becomes an intoxicant mm-hmm. is probably not true. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that we don't really understand how that works. And... That there is totally that there that there is a thing where like if you always want more of it and it can provide you something like we sh- that's like that's exciting we should look at that that's yeah. cool right like, I understand that there are some things that uh, uh in which with which that is not cool but like sure. well, it can have harmful effects on your life and yeah, your like heroin yeah. but yeah. like also right. chili sauce is very similar. Or potato chips. Great. Potato chips, great. Don't have too many of those. Though. No, they no, will make you, you feel won't. bad eventually. You won't have eventually, too many. Eventually, you will have too many of them. I don't think you will. They're very good. Um, Can I say that this is one of the things that I really love about Tamar's podcast, mm-hmm. is that there is this sense in which, first of all, to me, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like um, your podcast, um, uh, Food Actually, which it seems to me that you're actually trying to consciously clear away a lot of our misconceptions, a lot of the cultural baggage around food, and a lot of the mental baggage that we carry around when even contemplating the act of eating something that either prevents us from eating something that like we should because we'd enjoy it, or it's good, or you know we have the wrong idea about it, or that we engage in it, but, but maybe if we stopped and thought about it a little bit more, maybe we wouldn't eat it if we, if we really really thought hard about the experience of eating it. Like, this is the sort of thing that, that I come to your podcast for, mm-hmm. right? Like, that these binaries are being punctured, right? And and that seems to be, you know, beyond the pleasure of, of listening to, like, you know, the show itself. The takeaways from this are things that I... This is one of the things I get from you on a regular basis. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to the podcast more, um, one thing that we like to start out asking guests and we're far past starting out here, but it's fine. Um, is, is there some kind of, uh, primal scene or originary moment and it doesn't have to do with food or whatever we're talking about today. It can just be like when I was, you know, a teenager or when I was a child, um, I lied about knowing something. I, 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 I fibbed and prevaricated about something that I did not really understand or know that was powerful to you uh, or formative? Do you have any such anecdotes? I think it's such a great question. Um, Just because when you, like, when you think about that, you start to think, like, everything, right? Well, sure, because youth is, like, defined by these things. It's like every day you do, yeah. Yeah, but I have two... But there's bigger and smaller ones. Yeah, yeah, I have two answers, but they're they're divergent answers. Mm -hmm. So the first answer is that I have felt like a liar my whole life because I, um, until I hit really my 20s or even later, I had this, like, I don't know what it would be like to have a real photographic memory, but I had an ability to just, like, mentally capture anything um, that I looked at, which mm. meant like, so my whole, really up through high school, I could just look at something. And if I kind of understood what was on it, I could like, just keep it like it was and then use it. Can you give us, can you give us, can you give us like an example? 
like pages of a history book. Mm. But I don't have them still. I don't have a mental catalog. It was just like I could like look at I just didn't, I didn't ever do schoolwork because I would just look at pages of books before tests or before whatever, like I'd take it home and then look at it and then, you know, like there was a lot of information in like, that. Like this is the way you do a math problem. And yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the way you do it. Like it would but be I always accurate did, and correct and you would do it right and get the right answer. But I always did better in history and English than math because math, you have to do more work. History and English is repetition. Mm. So my big lie is that I never learned anything about history or about English or about English history or anything at all. Because before a test, I've always been able to just, just like I could just look at pages. I would just look at pages the night before, right before. And then when I sat down to the test, I would just call up the page and then write down the answer. Now, when you Which, say you never learned anything, like what do you, because like you clearly, you're a professional writer who writes for, very prestigious publications. So, like, what do you mean that you never learned anything about well, I think English? I, like, I think I've gotten better at learning, but I think I really wasn't good at learning. Like, I think my learning muscles are very underdeveloped because I got straight A's and did great my whole life in school without ever learning how to learn because I could just essentially, like see something again. I could literally sit down. I mean, in my whole, I just always was a great student, but it was just by sitting down and then I could call it up and then I would write it down. I'd just picture the page, write it down. And then, but it never, it didn't absorb. I would just replace it. It was like, like a weird computer thing. There were just facts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was fine. Like it would stick around for a couple of days if I need, if I wanted to call up the page, I could. Right. And then find the thing on the page. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have, I didn't synthesize anything. And then like at some point, I started, first of all, that kind of, I don't know if the ability faded. Like, I can still always find things. Like, I can, I think I probably do it a little bit, but you don't look at pages all the time. Um, but it, it became much less useful. It's hmm. a less useful thing after, like, 10th grade. Why do you think that they is? They want, like, analysis. Well, and, well like, wait, but wait. Synthesis. But, but, why, but why, why do you think that would be? Because, just to sort of frame that a little bit, right, like, I think that the thing that you're describing, I think that people might find it confusing because oftentimes when we think about like knowledge, we think about it in terms of like fact, right? Knowing certain things, right? Knowing, I don't know when when the when the uh, Falklands War happened or whatever, um, and uh, and what you're describing is not a deficit in fact, which you say you had a good grip on at the time but a deficit in, th in synthesis, right? So there's this distinction between, like, information and understanding. Well, hold on, two things. One is retention. Mm. A weird thing, a weird facet of this, and, like, I don't know how to describe it other than how I'm describing it. I don't have some other way of describing it. But, like, I could keep it for a couple days or a day. I don't, I would, like, keep it It's called short-term memory. And then it's gone, yeah. <laughs> like, but it wasn't, it's not like the facts were in my head. I can still picture some of the pages. Oh. It's that the pages are in my head. So, like, I don't have the Falklands were even the dates. Yeah. The dates, I might be able to, like, plug into some larger understanding. But I literally have, like, just visual, like, snapshots. You know, I have that. I, I have a horrible memory in any, by any definition. But I have that for, for novels and for, and for books that really mean a lot. I can remember what the page looks like where I read a certain passage and I couldn't call, you could find it I couldn't call it up right now right but if I'm reading a different edition of the text like I'll go like oh, I remember where that is on the page and how the book smelled probably like cigarettes because I was probably smoking while I was reading <laughs> at the time uh in college or something right I don't think that that's I think that's interesting that you've incorporated this into your sense of what it means to know something well, I've incorporated it into my sense of, uh, like, who I am, mm. which means that I kind of never knew anything. Yeah. Right? So this, the answer, answer one to the question was I have never known anything because <laughs> I have always... You're the perfect guest. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I never yeah. learned anything. I never knew anything. Answer two is I question the premise of faking it. Hmm. <gasps> <gasps> You're also the perfect guy. Gabe, <laughs> cut, cut the mic. <laughs> cut the mic. Tell us why. Well, I think, like, the thing, I was thinking about it today. 
And I was, I was wondering what, in the false binary world, what the kind of setup opposite was. And it seemed like it was like truthing it. And that like what, what the thing would be that you could do right. Do you guys know? I think it would be to not, I think it would be to not live your life um, worried about what other people thought you knew and worried about not living up to that expectation. It's sort of keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing. It's like in any situation feeling like you don't measure up and you have no way of getting in. Um, and the opposite of that would be not caring or like, which would be kind of an ideal situation, I think, is, is like not, either not, 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 not necessarily not caring at all, but not caring if you didn't know something. I think that's very, like, at, the, at its most basic, it's like, oh, I don't know anything about that. Can you tell me? Which is something that, like, I, you know, in the course of this, you know, recording this podcast and, and sort of thinking about this stuff a lot, I've tried to do more. I think I've tried to do more in my life over the past you know, 15, 20 years is say, I don't know, I don't know what that is. Can you tell me? Because that's actually kind of an exciting feeling as long as that's not also making you feel like you're a spotlight is on you for not knowing something, which people will make you feel, you know, and that's, I think, what we're dealing with in general. Well, I I think that for me it's like um it's it, it's not about like whether I'm faking or whether I'm not or whether I know something or whether I don't because one of the things that's become clear to me over the course of um my life is that like I often don't know when I know what I'm talking about. I know when I don't know what I'm talking about, but sometimes, you know, someone will ask me a question about something and then I'll say like, Oh, I don't really know about that or whatever. And then they'll prod and I'll be like, well, there's this and that and that and that. And I'll realize like, I actually do know a lot about that thing. I just tend to sort of like think of myself as this kind of like blank slate that has nothing on it except for what I'm currently thinking, which is usually something fairly dumb. Like, like, Oh wait, uh, where are my keys? Like, I don't need them now, but I'm just wondering where they are. Um, you know what I mean? And so I I, I always just assume that whenever I'm, or, or, or part of it is about, like, kind of like assuming that I may be doing some faking. I may be, like, sort of speaking out of turn. I mean, maybe one way to say it is, like, imposter syndrome, right? I mean... Can I please interrupt you? Please. Because I was thinking about this today, and it was that the very existence of imposter syndrome and the way everybody responds to it to me maybe is an indication of it's like should obviate it mm -hmm. of its total null nullity yeah because here's why when you say imposter syndrome to anybody they go yeah i have that yeah everybody says that nobody would be like no i never feel like an imposter we all feel like frauds we walk around feeling like frauds and we all do it it's collective and what that means to me is that we're all aiming to connect. We're trying to be social creatures. We're mm -hmm. trying to connect with each other. And that the goal of our talking and our living together and our communing in any way is to connect. So when we lie about having seen Finding Nemo, when we <laughs> lie <laughs> or having... Well, one, that's a complicated issue. I know it is, but I, I, I mean... I agree that, like, I, I, I'm a fan of your podcast. Mm -hmm. I listen to Thanks. Christine Smallwood, who's an amazing writer's um, analysis of what it means to have seen it versus not having seen it. Mm -hmm. The idea that they result in the same thing, which mm -hmm. is not remembering. For a certain yeah. person sitting at this table. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I was thinking it's about me. it when I first listened to it. I went, I don't, I, I've seen it. I remember where I did. Mm -hmm. I don't remember it. I've seen Bambi. I don't remember it. I've seen Dumbo. I don't remember it. Like, but don't I, you think that's just because you were a small child when you probably saw it? It doesn't matter. It, I think that we say things to get closer to each other. And that if you miss, you can spend all the time you want sort of miss, um, 
misdiagnosing speech mm. and um, community, but it won't necessarily result in a good analysis. And that that probably we're trying to do what we're trying to do by speaking at all is to say to somebody like, I see you, I see you, I see you. And mm. we lie to say, I see you all the time. And it doesn't align with fact. Well, I we, think we're that... trying to say it and it's not true. So I want to bring this to what you know and speak most about, which is food and cooking. Um, you trained as a chef, uh, or sorry, as a cook. Um, we can talk about that a little bit. But um, what, what, what were some of the things when you were training? You know, you, you sort of started your career as a writer and then an editor and then left that to go work in kitchens. Um, and I think we all know that kitchens are places where people are worked very hard and where expertise, in some cases, is at a real premium. And there's a lot of sort of pissing contests that happen. Uh, what was that experience like for you in terms of, like, as someone who has, and I will give, like, some background, like, you grew up with somebody who was a food professional your mother was a caterer uh, or ran a catering business. And so was like a very excellent cook and knew how to do all kinds of things. And presumably you learned how to do those while you were growing up. So you didn't have nothing to sort of base it on. And you were, you're not coming from nowhere, but entering a kitchen is a very different experience. And I want you to sort of describe that and how it feels in terms of what you know and what you don't know and how that plays out. I think that, Faking it in a kitchen is harder than anywhere else. And so I, I think it's kind of a cool way to think about like what this is as a social mechanism because mm. you can't really do it in a kitchen. And it was so amazing for me to get smacked down in a kitchen because it's really impossible to charm your way out of like a brunoise. You can't do it. Is that just because the food is either good or not it's either no, it's because you have a specific task mm. i mean but yes sorry mm. the answer is yes well it's, it's either correct or it's, it's, correct it's or the not, thing yeah. or it's not the thing but i had a friend i still have a friend named amelia who um went to culinary school which i didn't and the way she got through culinary school was by hiding or eating her mistakes <laughs> <laughs> which i thought was so genius and she we worked together at Chez Panisse and she told me that the way she learned how to brunoise which is you cut everything a 16th of an inch big was by cutting off the sides of the vegetables and then eating them and then eating anything that wasn't <laughs> oh perfect oh my god <laughs> That's great. And that was That's great. So she's like, just eating great? like raw potatoes anything, in a anything. and oh then ending God. up with a, an incredibly yeah. small pile of stuff. <laughs> and it's like, here's my brunoise, and They're it's like, like, where were all the vegetables, you guys? Like feet. they were small. They were tiny. Vegetables. They were tiny vegetables. I did. I cut them up perfectly. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine what the starch content of that person is after the <laughs> end of. That sounds even I, more. Yeah. I mean, because you know, in recent years, especially like the kind of like, uh, you know. Uh, martial brutality of the kitchen, which you've written very uh, uh, compellingly about, um, I, I, I guess, like against this sort of myth. Uh, the martial brutality of the kitchen is something that people have, you know, kind of like fetishized and mythologized in, in recent years, right? And to think that, like, that's what it takes, like, you're just eating, like, raw carrots, like, hidden I mean, away. Hold some... on, raw carrots are delicious. But how many delicious. can you eat? I mean, it's the scraps. I thought it was genius. And it yeah. was, no, it's it, brilliant. That was the thing that gave me this sort of like new perspective on what I was supposed to do. Mm. That was kind of like, look, dude, we're all doing the same thing. And that's doing what we can and getting through. And I feel like that was the that's the closest I've ever seen to kitchen baking it. Because yeah. truthfully, you can't do socially you can't do in a kitchen what you can do socially, but that's also part of the reasons that that's part of the reason that kitchen is kitchens are dysfunctional. Yeah. Like I think that what I my questioning of the premise is like what we're what we're trying to do is like empathize with each other. And one of the things that makes that hard is when we're working in something hard and fast, which mm -hmm. we should go on doing. Mm -hmm. And you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no there's no wiggle room. You actually can't fake it in a kitchen. Right. Mm -hmm. 
but, and other than eating <laughs> right but that's not but I, eating, but I, eating the evidence but yeah. i would say like like look like if you think about like this entire project in some sense is the epiphenomenal residue of all of our you know lies that we've accreted over our lifetimes and now feel like we need to do something with we need to like get it out we can no longer hold it in what better sort of like you know materialization of that can there be than literally eating your own inability to measure up to the standard that you set for yourself i totally agree do you guys want to go cook nemo (laughs) (laughs) i don't do clownfish taste good I don't think so. They're I very mean, small. They'd be fine. They'd be fine. They're tiny. They're fine. Yeah. They're very small. I'm thinking of a fish called Wanda. You just kind of drop it in your mouth like a shot. They'd be fine. That's not for taste. That's for yeah. reven- revenge. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 but what sweeter taste is there, Gabe? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, so that's in the kitchen. And that's like when you're cooking something. You're right. There's no... There's no uh, you, know, you can't sec- lie. You can't lie. There's no second best. There's no like, well, it's basically right. But there's a lot of talking that goes on. Presumably when you were training, also you were hanging out with a lot of chefs, maybe who you weren't working with. Was there a lot of kind of like, well, I know how to do X? No. Like, no. No. Kitchens are one. But I think, so now I'm a food writer, which is a whole different realm. I mean, the cooking, you cannot, you can't lie. It's kind of an antidote to it. it. it's you just there aren't people who are like or you don't no, but you there aren't people who are like oh my technique is blah no. blah blah and then they no, just you can't you know. do it I mean, but one of the beautiful things about your about your call or your your writing is that you kind of narrate that process like you narrate the process of fucking up like you narrate the process right? of like not doing it right right which first of all as someone who is like you know tries to cook and, and, and tries to make things, it's very comforting to me. Do you like someone who like knows the biz and knows her craft? She's just like, this dumpling is leaky and bad. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my dumplings are also leaky. And bad. <laughs> yeah. okay. Like there's something comforting about that, right? About being upfront about this process, about, about, about the very fact. Yeah. You cannot lie. And mm-hmm. I think that that's wonderful. Well, and, and that, yeah. It, I do not think that that holds in the realm of food writing. I think that's where it becomes, where we get closer to, I haven't seen this movie, I haven't heard this song, Mm -hmm. Um, because uh, there's no, you know, there's no test. The cool thing about a kitchen is you have to be able to do it. Like, you just can't, and it's also hard about a kitchen, but if you can't do it, you can't work in the kitchen. And um, that's not true of food writing. And I, and I, a thing that I always do think about is like, this is not a kind of faking it that is about socializing and getting closer to each other. Like if you, Gabe, lied to me about having read a book, mm-hmm. you're lying to me so that we can go on talking. Yeah. And you want to go on talking so that we can be friends. And we, yeah. you want me to be friends with you so that we can like have experiences together in our life. Like mm-hmm. that is a cost benefit. It's good, right? Yeah. But then... There are other kinds of faking it, and I do think that that happens, that, that, that people or just everywhere, I think that we might be getting advice from people who haven't cooked like a thousand potatoes, and then I worry that it's like you should cook a thousand potatoes first, because well, otherwise you don't maybe know really the answer, and if you don't know the answer, then you might not be helping people. I just want people to have the real... Well, this brings me to like when you left kitchens and started writing and wrote your first book um which is like on the one hand it's the whole sort of purpose of the book is to give people sort of the freedom to cook with like leftovers to cook with regular food with with the things you can buy in the supermarket but also the framework of the book is is kind of how to cook everything a little bit like it has a chapter on every kind of food was there mo- were there moments were there periods where you felt in that transition from the kitchen where you can't mess up you have to like have the dish to writing about it that you felt 
like you had to cook a thousand potatoes and did you and oh like wait, i could wait never wait know. hold yeah, wait, like wait. You, i want to i want to i want to impose that was a softball yeah well i got it well i don't <laughs> can we uh, um, can we let tamar think this over while we have a little bit of a break yeah sure yeah let's yeah. take a quick break tamar a, a you're gonna take this break. softball you're gonna catch it you're gonna throw it back in gabe's face <laughs> all right we're gonna take a break we'll be right back Last time we talked, which was just a couple of minutes ago, you asked me whether I felt like a fraud when I went to writing about cooking. And I was like, did I did I peel 100 potatoes yeah. to actually write about potatoes? Mm-hmm. Like, did I? I was saying that you have to do that to authentically write about it. Like, you have to know the carrot deeply. You have to know... The beef right. in its soul. And you'd been in kitchens. You'd, you'd worked at restaurants. I had. But and you were writing a book about this. You had to like, did you know that? Uh, I, I, I have never felt, I think, more confused about authority than when I was writing my first book. And um, I think I've become less confused about authority. But the question of faking it can, can I ask you why why you felt that way when you were writing your first book? I was not in a position to become an authority. Mm. I had worked in kitchens for four years, and there were lots of things I didn't know. I didn't know the end result of everything. I didn't know if everything went bad. Four, four years being not a super long time. Yeah. Yeah. And so the thing that I like ran through in my head then and do now is like, okay, logical extreme. What would it look like if you knew everything? And you get to like infinity. Nobody knows that. This is the threshold problem. Like, it's why faking it is a questionable premise. Like, because nobody knows the answer. And so uh, I decided, I know as much as I know, I will replicate it in text. But I, but like the real question i think is like how much do you need to know to give a reasonable suggestion how did that feel <laughs> when you went to print like were were there feelings with my first book yeah i mean no, i went you i hung out with you that that, that day mm-hmm. we i went crazy i felt terrible i felt terrible why did you feel ter- what, what what did you what was the worst case scenario that you were like imagining i didn't imagine it that's not I think that the hypothetical is the is the probably is the solution like I didn't imagine it the worst case scenario would have been that people cooked something from it and it still would have been pretty good because the cooking's always <laughs> good like the food's good it's fine you're hungry that's, al- like, that's always my worst case scenario when I'm cooking I, know. We, I think we I think we actually under we think we over hypothetical I think we under hypothetical. I think I we under theorize. Whenever, I, whenever I'm cooking for other people, I'm you know I spend all day like preparing and like you know or or the day before like prepping everything, and then you know because I'm a frantic person and you know by the time like it, it comes time where they're almost coming over, I'm always at a state where I'm like they'll fucking eat what I serve them. Like you know I, you know and they'll and they'll be happy about it. And if they don't like it, then fuck it. And that's like and that's oh, my really because what I feel is like until I hear someone say, "Oh, this is really good," yeah, I am like I am already devastated. Which is very. I'm like this I just is. Wanna, I, just wanna, I tasted it and it was fine, but who knows what I my taste buds. Back, I want to flash back to the one time that Gabe has cooked me dinner. Which is my my partner <laughs> Jessica and I came over. Christine and Gabe invited us over. I'd had you guys over for dinner. I cooked what I thought was a very good vinegar chicken, and um, it was very good. And you guys had us over, and uh, you were bringing out the meal to serve it. I also made a chicken. You also made a chicken. It was mm-hmm. also I will I will preface this by saying like it was really good. And the thing that impressed me most was that you had roasted the potatoes for a long time and they came out perfectly crisp. Mm-hmm. And that is actually kind of like a hard thing to do, especially when you're cooking it at the same time as the chicken and you're using the drippings 
directly from the chicken on and i was like bravo like this is like the ideal potato was however <laughs> was coming out with the chicken on the platter and then just jumped it onto the floor uh, <laughs> what <laughs> i fell i fell down i fell down and more important than me falling down was the chicken fell out. and you just looked at it on the ground with this with, as though you knew, um, as though like some, as though you had consulted some Cassandra who had told you that that's what was going to happen, and you were like, "Yes, yes, I did it." That's oh exactly right. It was pieces of chicken. I had already, I had already like cut it up into like all the different parts. It wasn't a full chicken that just like bounced on the floor. It was oh pieces of chicken everywhere. Uh, not all of the pieces of chicken fell on the floor. Babe. There were some that did not. And we Were you okay? How did you feel? Them up. That's what I want to know. How did you, you and feel? Christine ate the fallen chicken. Well, it didn't you actually... Guys. You know yeah, what? I'm sure it was fine, but how did you feel? I felt embarrassed, but actually... Oh. the th- because in- I laughed I laughed yeah. really hard. Yeah. Everyone, Everyone did. So I'm going to hold your hand right now. <laughs> this has happened to me so many times. It really has. I really... I'm so happy to be touching the, you. The this thing, has happened to me a million times. The thing times. is, is that I wasn't... I, like because, like what we're talking about. I wasn't actually worried about the chicken like, falling cool. on the floor. Oh, good. I was worried that the chicken wouldn't taste good. Yes. Would something be wrong with okay, it? Okay, victory. And so I was like, so I was like, well, the chicken's it. on the floor, but like, how does it taste? Yeah, is it properly is it, salted? Is it cool? Like, are we good? Because I need that validation. Yeah. And I did eventually get it, and it was great. It was delicious. Um, it was a great. Oh, meal. It was interesting. Was, what, so that was a little bit of a detour in terms of because. The, the chicken was delicious. It was all perfect. So it, per- it, was all, it, was it all, doesn't really matter. It was but, all perfect. Yeah. It was all delicious. It was all great. It was like, it was it was a lovely evening. I mean, and that's the most important part. Is although, have, is the, like, although the, do, this does remind me, I did go to a, a, the house of a, a, an old friend, uh, meaning we're not really friends anymore, but not for any bad reason. We just, you know, whatever. Um, they cooked a chicken, like a whole roast chicken, and it was raw on the inside. That's why you're not friends. Uh, that, I, I, do, I, I, I think that's I, I true. I can't say that it contributed to it, but it probably yes, it did. did. Yeah. Yes, it did. When somebody in, serves you raw meat, you think there's something else going on with you that I cannot understand. In any understand. event, there was this whole... Did you eat it? Everyone did. There was this whole play that I've happened eaten, where I've, everyone was like, this is, this is wonderful. Oh, oh it's a little crazy. undercooked near the bone, but that's fine. Oh, a friend We're cooked, all okay. A friend and like, cooked oh us this Cornish is delicious. It was not delicious. That that chicken was raw. A friend cooked us Cornish game hen. And, Cornish game hen, and yes. we were, I was like looking at it. I'd cut into it and I was like, that's raw at the bone. And I was like, there's, there's no going back. I have to do it. Can we bring this back to faking it? it? Yes. Because I think this is really interesting. Um, the impulse that the impulse that inspires us to tell people that are serving us something that it's edible when it's not edible mm-hmm. is the same impulse that motivates us to tell people we've seen oh. a movie when we haven't seen it or That's we've read a book when we haven't read it. Yeah. It's the exact same thing. Well, I want to say, I, so here's my, this is my thesis. Mm-hmm. We're moving toward something, which is I want this to happen, right? Like I want this to be okay. And so you eat something that's raw, which is fucking crazy, by yeah. the way. I would mm-hmm. never do that unless it was like specially designed to be raw. I would be like, this shit is raw. Chicken, and you're, chicken you're is not designed to be raw. Like, you're, you're, we should, but, we shouldn't be raw. You're, but, sidebar, your 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 piece in vogue about serving raw food to friends. Yes, I've had I've served. I'm so glad you read that. Oh yeah, because I've served ceviche to friends. So good. And I'm just like, here's hoping. Yeah, but that, it's fine. Like yeah. that's so. I just mean like with it depends how you buy your chicken. If you're buying like special mm-hmm. farm raised chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's cool. And like, but generally, if people are serving you food, you have to assume it's purchased on the commodity market mm-hmm. from the supermarket mm-hmm. and it is bacterially disastrous yes. and it should be cooked. Yes. If somebody's, if you have like a chefy friend who says, come over to my house for a raw dinner and they're making a ceviche, you're cool. And it's true that many more people die of things like air conditioners falling on them than they mm. do from eating raw food. But I think it's worth pointing out that what we're all doing is trying to like, just like have an emotional, we're having like a brain hug, an emotional Mm -hmm. hug. We're all just trying to go like, like we will eat stuff that might kill us just to say like, 
I love you. I think yeah, this, well, chick, yeah. this chicken is not only raw but it is like, and flavorless, yeah, but it is one. also maybe dangerous <laughs> to me bodily. Yeah. And, yet, and yet, our friendship, I'm glad to be here. Thanks but for I having will, me but over. I, but I will say there's, there's, a, there's a difference, right? Because like, you know, when you're cooking for someone, like first and foremost, you're doing it as like a gesture of like friendship and 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 generosity and all of that because you know let's face it it's expensive to like buy ingredients and and it's a pain in the ass to like spend your day like preparing Ah, ah, i'm not gonna face those i will not accede to either of those two points well you can go on someone in this room can write off their food expenses (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um i it's less expensive to cook than to go out to dinner and it is not a pain in the ass to cook because it's more fun than doing other things no that that's true i I will take that back because i do enjoy cooking (laughs) i do enjoy cooking i do like making food and i and i like the entire process but there's always like part of me when like something's not going according to plan i'm like (laughs) why did i do this why did i do this um but there's a there's a different position you apparently we've all been in the position of eating something we really shouldn't have mm-hmm. it, you know where s- someone invites you in and and they and they do this thing which is a very generous thing to bring you in and 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 make dinner for you and it's an expression of their friendship for you and is an expression of your friendship that you go and then when it's maybe possibly not good for your health to eat it um, that's just a kind of amplified version of of the situation in general, which is I'll eat what you serve me. Like I will, I will subordinate myself to you, and I'll put myself in your hands. And that's different from the kind of faking that we've talked about in different episodes, which is all about the will to power in yeah. some way, which is all about the kind of mimicry of mastery. That's but that's your narrative about your experiences with faking. And what I'm uh, suggesting is that there's a chance that every time we do this, we're doing the same thing, which Mm -hmm. is trying to be friends. So, I mean, this, I mean, I do want to talk about the podcast and and this sort of brings us to it, which is like your podcast, Food Actually, is... Only on Luminary. Only on Luminary. Only on Luminary. A production of Pushkin Media. If you don't say that, Malcolm Gladwell will come and punch you in the neck. Is that true or not? I've no, heard that's, that's true. that's not true. There's, there's a great deal to get the podcast for a very low rate. Oh, stop it. They're there not is, paying there, us. No, there, no, there is. There is. Not it's yet. important um, for me to say, for, for that really matters to me, because I have put my heart and soul into this podcast, and it's four ninety nine a month. And it, 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 I understand that it's totally unusual to have to pay for a podcast, but it's also what I'm putting my whole life into right now. I would, so I want to promote it. I would say that having listened to many of Tamar's episodes, even that is worth the price of admission. <laughs> but, all, but I will also say that um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to the ethos of faking it where we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we, we don't have any professionals, except for Evan. Sorry, Evan. Evan knows what he's doing. He's our, he's our editor. He will save all of our worst fuck-ups. But Gabe and I don't know what we're doing, and we release it 100% for free, which is basically like saying you can go through the dumpster of a really nice restaurant <laughs> and get whatever you want. Whatever undercooked or uncooked yeah. things. But the podcast that you... Uh, uh, have created is in uh, large part about mythologies and you know uh, untruths about food that you want to explode or just sort of talk about. Um, how did you come upon this as the idea of like what what sort of food food podcast you wanted to do? You could have done one that was like interviews with chefs or like the like the most crazy ingredients or like the hottest dishes or whatever. Like, I don't know. But like you wanted to do this thing that's about the pervasive mythologies around food and how they're bad and not helping us and what we can do. Why? I've never even listened to a food podcast. Mm-hmm. Have you? Sure. The only yours. Yeah. I have actually listened to all <laughs> No, those, I mean, like, really, Which is I'm, why I can say it's the I, best I, I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> yours is the only thing. No, but why was, it the, why was this the, the subject that attracted well, you? Well, because it's, it sort of seemed like I don't want to... I didn't... 
I don't want to listen to food podcasts because uh, I'm lucky enough to be to know how to cook and to be able to cook and I tend like I love reading books about other things and listening to podcasts about other things um, but in my brain I was walking around going that's not true that's not true that's not true that's not true but it's always about food because that's what I know the most about mm-hmm. just just from like having been I mean I've been a cook and a food writer now for a really long time like mm-hmm. I just this is my world even if I even if I wanted to do something else it's like you know I just get like emails and it's like a, it's a it's a tide you know I'm yeah. an ocean of food stuff and plus I love cooking it doesn't even I I cook every day I you know every time I think I'm like getting jaded i'm like i decide i want to start making our yogurt and it's really easy and i love making yogurt and you know it's just like i i like i like the physical world and my way of engaging with the physical world is through my mouth i wonder (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much i know this is kind of this is like a kind of a weird question but like you know i i was not raised in in a home where like food was really a thing um it was really just kind of like and and this is no shade to my parents but like it was just it was what you did to get nutrients into the mouths of your children um and they were not big on cooking stuff and and it's actually like now a a kind of great pleasure to me as someone who's gotten into cooking so when i go home and i can cook for my parents and they're amazed because i can even though i'm doing something that's like pretty simple um uh but can you i wonder if you can like describe what that particular pleasure feels like because i think a lot of people think about cooking as like a burden or something that like you have to do and not something that is in any way involved with joy right Mm -hmm. even though people who may not like cooking they very much like enjoy eating what is what to i guess what are the joys of cooking I think you can I think that you can't I think the joys aren't the same for everybody because I'm always going to be describing my life. And for me, uh what I like the most about cooking is that it's my flow state, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can but I can't it's not like I can listen to I can't have a conversation and cook. But I when I'm cooking, I'm just cooking. Mm-hmm. And the faster and the harder and the more the better. And that's my version of cooking and it comes from practice I think because it's something that I've gotten used to doing and good at doing do you think of it as a solo exercise no I can do it with a thousand people it's just that the more that's happening the better it is I can just it's it really is flow like when it's a buddhist Mm. flow state it's like I don't have to think I just do the thing it's um deeply instinctive and it's easy that's interesting. Like, and, and, and that, but I, but, but I think I can't, I, the reason I started cooking was because it was a point of pleasure. It was like my mom cooked and it was her happiest thing. And so I was used to this like little burble of pleasure that you get from eating and mm-hmm. this little burble, of, you know, just like that eating itself is like a little, a little frisson. Mm-hmm. And like, I was used to that, that like, eating is this special thing and you're supposed to have the special feeling. And it was like choosing something that felt special, mm-hmm. which took me a very long time to do. But I don't think that everybody should take joy in cooking at all. But I think that's like a terrible lie. I think uh, it's crazy to imagine. We would all love that. We, we don't all love like football or like, math or building stuff like that's crazy i think that it's probably a thing that we can do and we might find joy in doing if we did this is like some collective human population because it's fun to do stuff and it's fun to get good at stuff and my personal experience of life is that it doesn't matter what you're doing for me it doesn't matter what i'm doing if i practice it enough i'm like it makes me happy to do it because i'm I, I, I think that's that's really important to say because I, I I think that you know one of in recent years especially right especially with the rise of meal boxes 
which I, which personally I love because I, that's how I learned how to cook. Like that's was through like getting a subscription to a meal box and like learning all of the basic stuff. Like here's how you zest a lemon. Here's how you chop food. And I'm looking on stuff on YouTube and, and reading some other books too. But like, it's cause I, I, I clearly I wanted to do it, but I think that there is uh, a little bit of cultural pressure around the idea that you should like to enjoy cooking. Yeah. There, you should like to prepare a meal. And if you don't, it's because you're lazy or uncultured or whatever. Like there's something, there's some like kind of dark interaction between like the cult of productivity and the cult of, and, and like, and the culinary world that, can be uh, mis- misleading or damaging to people. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's the right I don't think that's the right interface. I don't think that's mm-hmm. where the I don't think that's the membrane that yeah. the friction's happening on. I think it's that um, aesthetically we've chosen home cooking as uh, an aesthetic that we delight in. Like it, that's a that's an appreciated aesthetic, and so for people of a certain like bent of mind and mm-hmm. like of a certain political orientation, you should like to cook. And it's like too much. There are so many dumb logical leaps there and so many you should, you should, you should. That's just not true. Like cooking for many people, <coughs> cooking for many people will be boring. And that's fine too. Like we we might all have to do things that we don't like doing sometimes. But you don't have to like summon up a friggin' masterpiece. Like anybody that that does something again and again and again and gets good at it eventually likes the flow of it. So I don't think you have to like love it to be like, I'll boil my potatoes. And I also think that the whole idea that there's like some like connoisseur self that should like sweep into the kitchen and zest lemons every night is crazy and damaging. I mean, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about um, before we wrap up is the something that isn't about home cooking. It's more about the experience of food in the world. And that is the subject of a couple of your episodes are about wine and cheese, you know, and the language that goes around them and the kind of uh, theater that goes around, particularly picking a wine at dinner uh, or knowing about cheese in some way and being not being like, well, I like cheddar, (laughs) you know, (laughs) versus like knowing all the cheeses of the world. Like there's these varieties of things and it's very hard to know about all of all of them. And then there's also this sort of theater that goes into knowing about those things for experts where it's like, oh, it tastes like, you know, charred strawberries and whatever, you know, like a burnt cherry tree. I don't know why I'm focusing on burnt things, but like, you know, because what, you're thinking of Harbison. Well, that's wait, the one. What is that? There's a, it's a cheese that I think you're thinking of where the the it's it, where it's a cheese I think you're thinking of. Where the outside of it is like in a bark that is a tastes like cherry tree. I think yeah. that's why you're thinking of it. Yeah, but but I, what I want to ask you about is is you you know in a couple of episodes you t- like the particularly the wine ones you talk about what's a wine supposed to taste like versus what is the wine that you like to drink versus what is that whole theater of proving that the wine that you like to drink is the one that is valid or worthwhile or hip or whatever um what's your experience been of that kind of theater and what do you want people to take away from it in terms of busting those myths i have this i have a friend who is the wine expert at a place by me who i featured in my podcast and their name is wheeler and they have this unique combination of having really a t- taste in wine that totally agrees with mine and being totally resistant to description. Um, I think Wheeler's a trans man, which means, is that right? Like he, he used to, he, no, it, yes. Maybe he, not okay. He's a trans Great. man. Okay. Uh-huh. No, I think it actually is quite important. Oh. Yeah. Because Wheeler's whole perspective on wine depends on um, his understanding of like definition of person. This is what I think is actually interesting about wine and natural wine. That if a person's gender is not usefully made into a binary, 
then why would we do that to a wine? It is so silly. Like, like Wheeler's going, I'm queer. And I'm, I'm, I think now Wheeler's a man, or I don't even know. They're, Wheeler is what Wheeler is. Well, Wheeler's they, they Wheeler. have some. But yeah. 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 Wheeler knows. I don't know. But, but Wheeler's personal uh, journey has mimicked their wine journey, or maybe the reverse. And so their whole thing is like grapes turn into wine and then it becomes what it is. Like this is so insane that we would go. And you like, and you like what you, well, you like what you like and whether it's a Barolo or a Chardonnay. Or it doesn't even become what it is over time. It changes. You're right. Yeah. And, and, and and at some point it will be one thing and then another point it will be another thing. And it just matters when you meet it and decide you're like time to, time to cork, time to uncork this thing. Well, and where you find yourself. That was the most exciting. That's incredible. That was the most exciting and, um, useful and right approach to wine I had ever heard. And so when I met Wheeler, I got, I've never cared two wits, Two wits, one wit. A wit about wine. Oh, oh, I did it! I did it! I never the, uh... cared a wit about <laughs> wine, but I've always cared a lot about. I mean, I love wine. I just, I don't care about the, you know, the terms. But I would never say I know nothing. I know what I know, but I don't know how that knowledge is applicable to what I want to drink tonight. Perhaps not at all. Perhaps somewhat. And so, uh, what I liked about Wheeler's approach, and still like what Wheeler's approach is, it's is, is very Wheeler the sommelier at a particular place. They will not go by sommelier. Okay, they, Wheeler is, this is yeah, the lo- wine guy. Okay. at Little Deb's Oasis, okay. which is a restaurant by my house, um, that j'adore. Um, but Wheeler's whole thing is, look, we have to be as kind to wine as we are to ourselves so like if we are accepting about ourselves that we exist the way we do and we vary and we have highs and lows and we can't necessarily be defined by one gender we have to give that to grape juice that we like exalt in this way and that's what i that's what i really really think about about all food about everything like come on i mean that gets back to your initial critique of our podcast <laughs> uh, right which is that like you know there's this because when we think about we uh, particularly wine which has always been something that just to me has always been oh, i can't I, I i don't know how to do it i don't like i don't know i don't know i just go to my wine shop that i really like in the neighborhood um shout out irving bottle and they have people who will just i'm just like i need this i'm cooking this and they'll be like here's this and this how much do you want to spend and like this amount of money and they have never steered me wrong um you know but to think about wine is often thought about as something that is the product of taste right which is something that is inherent in you right you have it or you don't it is an exp- your taste is an expression of you and if you have bad taste that reflects poorly on you and so if you serve something to other people and they're like this is bad right, then that's a judgment about you. And you're like, there must be something wrong with me. And this idea that there is this dialectic between what you're drinking and what you are, and that there's a much richer interchange between what you're consuming, incorporating into yourself, right, and what and what you're being. That to me, even though it seems kind of abstract when I'm describing it that way, that sounds a lot more real than... Yeah. than than the idea that like you should know what year is the peak for X mm-hmm. vintage or whatever. Yeah, it's like if you if it could if it could matter not at all and matter completely, mm-hmm. that would be the answer. Your your body knows and we know and it's like a it shouldn't it's not like some mystical thing. Yeah. And it because it it's just if you if you actually mess up every single uh, message, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you if there's no chance of communication happening, then sure things are going to go crazy. But uh, I I I think that we can find our way through it, and well, that's... it's almost like we need to listen to our inner drunk telling us when we've had too much to go <laughs> eat a burrito, right? <laughs> right. Like, you know, like kind of, yeah. Well, maybe not. <laughs> definitely, that's not like a health piece of health. But when you are out of your head and you're like, I need fat and carbs to kind of pad 
the ex- my come down, like my experience, that's not wrong. Like it's not it's not it's not healthy behavior. Well, like, it's not unhealthy behavior either. Mm-hmm. It's the, there are lots of. I feel like we live in a world full of false binaries set up by people who just want to make money off mm-hmm. of one extreme or the other. So, I, essentially, that's what my message. We can. There is a. A, a, a galaxy sized space between yeah. wrong and right and we're mm-hmm. and we, we should will be, we will find our way we should be listening to tamar who's trying to make money off of off of offering the right message <laughs> <laughs> the middle road well uh thank you so much for coming on our podcast and you're welcome just as a reminder you. tamar's podcast is food actually mm-hmm. which is available to you via the pushkin network on right? luminary on luminary only on luminary yes yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Thank Tamar. you guys so much for having me. I have so enjoyed being here. All right, let's go get some dinner. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.